When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch, episode 35, covering Fearless 2012 from Everett, Massachusetts on November 2nd, 2012. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed or our own dedicated RS feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to donate to the show, no obligation, but be certainly appreciated. Just click the link on the uh, Red, on our show notes, that'll take you to redcircle.com, and then you click the red box, and you can do a one-time or reoccurring donation. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Aaron Mike Spears. Joined, as always, my co-host, Case Lowe. And Case, we are finally getting to a point now where we're through 2012, and then things are going to start wrapping up real quick here. Like, this is after 2011 this year, even though the shows felt like they went on forever, but 2012 and DGUSA kind of flew by. Yeah, we've got three shows left in 2012, including the one we're just about to talk about, which is really weird to think on a few levels. One, it just means that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel over this past weekend. Now, granted, it will be a few weeks before this episode comes out, or I guess this episode will come out a few weeks afterwards, but I was tweeting about what Mike and I might do in our next Rewind and Rewatch project. I have not discussed this with Mike, but I'm assuming unless we have any sort of drastic life changes that we will find another Dragon System product to review in depth like this once we're done and once we have a little bit of a break. But it's strange on that front that I I kind of know the cards that are coming up, but I know what matches we we are going to watch in the immediate future at this point, which when we started this project, it was like, oh, we'll get to Bushido Code of the Warrior 2013, and it'll be, you know, <laughs> months from now. But that time was almost here. We're almost at that show. So it's nice on that front. And also, for as much as I enjoyed most of 2011, the United Weekend, the Indianapolis show, the Milwaukee show, the final weekend of shows with Gargano beating Yamato for the belt. 2011 took us like three or four months to get through. I mean, we It spent feels like <laughs> three or four months, at least. We spent so much time because there were 
what there were, you know, a triple shot in January, a triple shot Mania weekend, an early summer triple shot, a late summer triple shot, and then the final, that's 18 shows. So it took us a long time to get through those. And while most of those shows were enjoyable, you really started to feel it by the end of covering 2011. Like, wow, like this is taking a while. In 2012, it feels like just last week we did open the Golden Gate with Pac versus Tozawa on it and Spike Mohicans versus Mochizuki and Susumu. So this year has really flown by. And then 2013, I'm very intrigued to go back and watch a lot of it because that is when I started watching the product in real time and I have a lot of rose-colored memories about what I'm going to watch. There are a few shows that I mean, I remember just watching over and over again because I was still really new to indie wrestling at that point and thinking this is the greatest thing ever, but that scramble match probably won't hold up. And then you have 2014 where you've got four shows and one Dragon Gate guy on it, and that Dragon Gate guy is Yosuke Santa Maria. So we're really, really approaching the end here. But in order to get to the end, we do have to finish off 2012, which we are going to do now and over the next three weeks. Yeah, I was just looking at Cage Match, and it's something that's wild, like how much like the bell curve of shows for DGUSA is so heavily slanted towards 2011 and 2010. 34 of the shows are during those those two years, but that also includes like pay-per-view things, so it's probably closer to, I would say, 28 maybe. But it's just like a wild thing to think about that now we have three shows here, nine shows in 2013, and then four shows in 2014, and that's it. We're done. Like, it's going to end up being a wild voyage, and it's one that, like, I always talk about. Like, I greatly have enjoyed doing this, and I'm looking forward to us getting to a point where we could take a step back and talk about this promotion in general versus then, like, in the moment and in some retrospect. Yeah, it's been really nice. I mean, I I don't think I mentioned it during the Midwest shows, the Taylor, Michigan show and the Chicago third anniversary show. But when Gabe started writing in the newswire that they were going to the Midwest in the summer of 2012, he was speaking of it as if it were going to be a triple shot weekend. Now, where Gabe would have run, I guess Milwaukee is probably the city that they left out. I don't think they would have gone back to Indianapolis, but ultimately that didn't happen. So now you're starting to see shows that were at least, there was a blueprint of an idea there, and those didn't even happen. So we're really towards the tail end of of our journey, and it's been an enjoyable one so far. Yeah, yeah, and this show that we're going to get into is an interesting stop on the journey, but it's been about four months since the last DGUSA show, and like we've done before, we're breaking up these news lines or these timeline stuff between doing stuff in Dragon Gate, doing stuff in the overall just wrestling world that were big enough topics that kind of dip in here. But for this time, KS, I believe, I believe we're going to be kind of like Tunnel Vision. We only have a few things to talk about to do the promotional leap from where Dragon Gate USA and WWN was in July versus to where they are now in November of 2012. That's correct. So next week, we'll be talking about Dragon Gate in Japan, Johnny Gargano and AR Fox going over for their second tours. There's a lot of big shows and big title matches at that point. Week three, during the final show of 2012 Freedom Fight, we will be talking about the U.S. indie scene primarily. There's a lot of Ring of Honor and PWG stuff I want to talk about that weekend, and then we'll put a bow on 2012 with Evolve 18, which was the final show of the WWN family that year. But this week, we're talking about Evolve 17 and the double header that they ran with CZW, an update on ATA and Mexico, 
And then we'll get into the show. I mentioned this either a week or two ago, but because of Web Archive, which is where I was getting all of my Drangate USA news wires, now they are harder to come by because what happened after the third anniversary weekend, and this is really, if if I mean, we are detailing the history of Drangate USA, talking about the web design that they had, because after the anniversary show, they changed the format of their website, so now their news wires were not posted directly to the site, but they were rather an external link that would lead to a constant contact email, and those constant contact emails have been hard to come by. So next week and the week after, we have some stuff specifically from Newswires, but for the next six or seven or eight shows, the Gabe Universe stuff is going to be a little bit harder to come by. So the timeline might jump around a little bit. It might not be as smooth. It might be more smooth. We'll see, because we won't have to read Gabe Sapolsky's writing. I don't know. But what I do know (laughs) is that on September 8th, 2012, Evolve 17 took place at the Flyer Skate Zone in Voorhees, New Jersey, and uh, there is a lot to get into on this show because it pertains directly to the Drangate USA show that we're about to watch. So I will read the results, but for the opening segment and opening match, I will read from the TJ Hawk 411 Mania review of Evolve 17, which is up on the 411 site. So I'll read verbatim from TJ here in which he says... The show starts with Lenny Leonard in the ring, but he is almost immediately interrupted by John Davis. He says that he demands an evolved title, and he makes the fans who want a title to stand up. Davis invites wrestlers from the back who want a title, so Jigsaw, Rich Swan, Lince Dorado, and A.R. Fox come out. Fox is wearing the Drangate USA Open the United Gate Championship belt. Ricochet then comes out. He says he's better than everyone here. Fox goes to punch him, but Ricochet ducks out of the ring. Johnny Gargano then comes out with his Open the Freedom Gate Championship belt. Gargano says he respects what Davis wants, but that he is already the champion for Evolve. And TJ puts in, in parentheses, finally that's been brought up. Gargano says he is a champion for the people. Gargano then suggests that they make their non-title match a match for the Freedom Gate belt. John Davis agrees, and Gargano wants the match now. The crowd agrees. Lenny Leonard confirms that Davis's career is still on the line in this match, per his own stipulation, and that this match is a Dragon Gate-sanctioned match. So that matters, because in the opening match, we saw Johnny Gargano defeat John Davis for the Open the Freedom Gate title, or rather to retain the belt, in 11 minutes and 20 seconds by countout. As Johnny uh, Gargano hit a Hertz donut on the floor, Gargano climbed in before the 20 cap, but John Davis did not. Gargano won the match, and now Davis's career was supposedly over. Gargano says he's not okay with winning the match that way. He doesn't want Davis to retire like that. Davis promptly killed Gargano with a discus lariat, and Davis then destroyed Gargano's corpse with a border toss out of the ring and through a table. The crowd then chants CZW. Gargano had to be helped to the back. Uh, And then TJ says, initially, I thought this would mean Davis was suspended, much like Sammy Callahan was for attacking El Generico after a match. But Evolve said after the show that this was a Dragon Gate sanctioned match and thus there would be no suspension. Whatever. Let's just hope they are consistent with this rule. So, Mike, your thoughts off the bat on the John Davis heel turn and the convoluted way of getting around the sportsmanship that Evolve was founded on. It's something where it's, if you notice in DGUSA, it constantly has some sort of Western big heel. If it was like starting with like how 
Kamikaze USA, like Granakuma was supposed to be the first person to like to to join like up with this and then you would have stuff like they were clearly at one point doing Brian Kendrick as that, but then it clearly became John Moxley and then Brody Brody Lee. And so they had like this big void, which is something that's kind of weird because Chuck Taylor obviously was never viewed as this, but he would be the big American heel, I guess, like uh, taking like the scene in their own thing and the inconsistencies with DUF. It makes sense that you go with Davis here. The way they did this were... It, it did seem like John Davis was legitimately looking at giving up wrestling. So he was talking about like, okay, if I lose, I'm gone. If I'm lose, I'm gone. And then just having to like backtrack on it and do it in this convoluted fashion is just frustrating. And it's kind of when, when you talk about like the booking of Gabe Sapolsky, a lot of people remember like obvious highlights and lowlights, but they don't remember stuff like this that just randomly happened on, on his shows and just felt just awkward. I've said it before, and I will say it for probably the next two weeks. I Look, I wrote a comprehensive article on the history of Evolve, and so much of Evolve in 2012 is a total blur for me. I mean, it just, it is off in its own universe of wrestling history that it'll never be recovered or preserved. It probably doesn't need to be, but it is just such a strange time and a strange promotion where, you know, Ring of Honor's not doing great right now. Ring of Honor's actually struggling and really, oh, arguably, we will on get into. Door. Yes, we'll talk about it in two weeks. But Evolve never ceases on that opportunity. It's we are in such a low point of Gabe as a Booker. And I've watched enough Gabe. You watched enough Gabe. We know when he cares about his product, or rather, that's not that's not fair. We know when Gabe is excited about his product. Yeah, it's it's very clear in 2015, 2016. Evolve. It's very clear, obviously, in the early days of Ring of Honor. It's very clear in Dragon USA through the first anniversary show that this guy is excited about what he's booking. And for as good as some of the Dragon USA shows have been in 2012, and, and while the Evolve shows are good on paper, I mean, Evolve is booking Loki and El Generico and Fit Finley and Samurai Del Sol and Johnny Gargano through this time period, these shows come across like Gabe just doesn't care all that much. And it, it, it it's like engaged. You could you could sense when he's engaged or not with the product, and he does not feel engaged right now. Yeah, I think that is an entirely fair way of putting it. So after the opening match where Gargano beat John Davis, we had Lince Dorado defeating Jigsaw. Christina Von Ari won a squash match over Marty Bell in a shine offer match. The DUF of Pinky Sanchez and Sammy Callahan defeated the scene of Caleb Conley and Scott Reed. Masada defeated Sammy Callahan in five minutes when Sammy Callahan tapped out to a submission. Callahan hurt his ribs in this match, and they had to go home early. Uh, TJ Hawk noted in his review that Callahan was the most over guy on the show, and the crowd was really, really quiet after Masada essentially just beat this guy up and made him tap so quickly. We get a six-man tag team match with Rich Swan and the Super Smash Brothers defeating the fully unearthed, fully formed gentlemen's club of Chuck Taylor, Drew Gulak, and Orange Cassidy. And then your final two matches, Ricochet defeats A.R. Fox and El Generico to conclude their best of three series, defeats Samurai Del Sol. Mike, do you have any other memories of Evolve 17? Is this a show you've seen? I remember Sammy getting injured. And it's something that, like, when I was going through notes doing research for the stretch of shows, I remember that happening. It, it It's something where this is a time in Evolve where, like, obviously, like, 
you could see like uh, I know we just said a couple minutes ago how he's disengaged. Uh, the one person that we could see with Gabe that he was not disengaged with whatsoever is Ar Fox, and that's very clear on these shows. And that's like the big takeaways. Yeah, no, he was really high on Ar Fox way before actually creating an evolved championship that he would win. And you know the whole El Generico thing is just like. So interesting to me, given how bad attendance was for someone who becomes or is like on the precipice of being one of the big indie stars, and that's that's always something that kind of takes me aback. Yeah, it's funny you said Ar Fox because when you started that sentence, I thought you were going to say Samurai Del Sol, who you could make the argument that Gabe is really into him at this time. Now Fox, it, it's it's really interesting watching Fox in this time period because he is really close to becoming a next-level guy. Now, you could make that argument in 2013 and 2014 and 2015 probably as well. Like, A.R. Fox has always been on the cusp of being one of the guys on the scene, and he's never really gotten there, which is a bummer, because whether it's with Gabe or, you know, he had a run at AAW. When I was reviewing the AAW shows consistently in 2015, 2016, and a little bit into 2017, A.R. Fox was typically the best guy on those shows. They would get a monthly heritage title match out of Fox where he would go nine minutes, and more often than not, he would kill it. Right now, Fox has the Shima tag team, and Gabe seems really invested in making that a thing. The issue, as we'll talk about next week, though, A.R. Fox, for a multitude of reasons, did not like going to Japan, so that was halted. And then he's got Samurai Del Sol, who I think Gabe has handled really well, but I think we say that because we've only been watching the Drangate USA shows, and I thought it was interesting that Generico beats Del Sol to win the best of three series, but we never, and maybe it's just a timing issue, because you got to remember, Generico signs with the WWE in January of 2013. He's got two months left on the indies from the show we're about to talk about, but we never get Gargano versus Generico, which I know Mike and I wanted to bring up at some point. I'll bring it up now because it's it's happening organically. We end up getting Gargano versus Del Sol on Del Sol's last Evolve weekend, but that's still six months away. But Generico wins, so I'm going to give Gabe the credit of hypothetically building towards Gargano versus Generico, but it's weird that that match never happened, not only in Dragon USA or, or Evolve, I don't think that match ever happened. Well, I will play the other side. Uh, there's a reason why El Generico wasn't booked. He was DDT's uh, champion at that time. He was doing DDT stuff like so much at that time that it's almost like why try to go down that route where Generico is obviously someone that you would want to have for like a Mania matchup, right? Like, why would you want not want to do that if you already like you have this guy that's only going to be around for so long? Why aren't you trying to do everything immediately to get those? to pop those houses, especially given what the, what DGUSA goes through over like the last five shows of 2012. Like I understand like the Del Sol thing, but everyone like you're, you're not getting like first dates on El Generico. You need to do what you can with them while you can. No, not only, I mean, they're not getting first dates with El Generico on Fearless 2012, the show we're about to talk about. Generico was working for Anarchy Championship Wrestling in Austin, Texas on this night. Generico right. was on the, the next two shows, but they don't even have priority booking for him. And to your point, if you want to talk about popping houses, using a guy on the indies, a very depleted, depressed market of the U.S. indies at this time, and we talked a few weeks ago, again, a show with Low Key versus El Generico in the main event drew 
about 100 fans, and that is a generous estimate in the Carolinas. Now, granted, Carolina Indies, we've talked about them. They're bizarre and what they like and what they don't like. But still, can you imagine booking a show with fans and 100 of them, only 100 show up to see Loki versus El Generico? It doesn't make any sense. What also doesn't make any sense is the 350 people that were at the Flyer Skate Zone after the Evolve show to watch CZW Down with the Sickness 2012. This show was a double header with Evolve, and because of that, it was broadcast live on WWN Live, which means not only is it still on that website, so you can watch CZW but not Drangate USA, thank you very much Gabe and Sal, but you can also read TJ Hawk's review of CZW Down with the Sickness 2012. It's <laughs> it's very funny. Look, I, TJ Hawk thinks I don't like him. That's not true. I like TJ. I think he's a nice guy. Uh, it's really funny reading a 2012 TJ Hawk review in general, but him reviewing CZW and wanting it to be actively good, like him hoping this is a really good show, is a really fun review to read. I will run down this card for you, Mike, because it it just, uh, it is something else. So we start off with Shane Strickland versus Rich Swan, where Strickland defeats Swan in the opener. After that, it is Drew Gulak and Kimberly defeating Greg Excellent and Mia Yim. Excellent and Yim had a, a big feud in the earlier part of the year. They are now teaming together. We had Pepper Parks defeating uh, Kikua, I believe is how you pronounce that. I don't know how you say that name. He is the Flying Hawaiian, and he was managed by Sonny who also popped up on the Evolve show to do an angle with Larry Dallas, Pinky Sanchez, and Marty Bell. If you can imagine those four in a ring at the same time, that is absolutely terrifying to think about. There was a CZW tag title match with Danny Havoc and Devin Moore going to a no contest with Ron Mathis and Rory Mondo. Ruckus defeats Alex Cologne. Matt Tremont defeated a guy named Solo in a 39-second squash match. Jake Crist and Sammy Callahan defeated the Super Smash Brothers. That match sounds like a lot of fun. And in a perverse way, so does the CZW World Heavyweight Championship match, where in 13 minutes and 54 seconds, Masada defeated El Generico. And if that wasn't enough, what is that? And what if that, is that wasn't enough, I, I, I need a moment, Case, because you just laid this on me, and I did. You, you said, "Hey, we're going to talk about the CZW card real quick." You, you knew I was going to be, just be befuddled by Masada defeating El Generico, didn't you? Look, like you had to expect that coming out of me. 2012 TJ Hawk, and there is a difference, but he gave it three and a half stars, and there is a highlight package of it on uh, the CZW YouTube channel, so you can look at Masada versus El Generico on YouTube and at least watch an abridged version of it. And then the main event, the CZW Junior Heavyweight title and the CZW Wire TV title unification Chris Cash Memorial Ladder Match, AR Fox defeats Dave Chris to unify the belts. CZW. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else do you want me to say? It's CZW for you. <laughs> I'm not the right person to do it because I don't have the time, energy, nor patience, but I am really intrigued by 2010 through 2013 CZW because it's young Adam Cole and Rich Swan and Sammy Callahan, and while you're going to have your deathmatch Nazan and your Matt Tremont and whoever else that I just I don't have any patience for, 
the young crop of guys that came up in CZW at this time, look, DJ Hyde is not going to get into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame for his influence case, but there were a number of guys coming out of his school that ended up being supremely talented. So I'm very, very intrigued by that era. And quite honestly, I'm just fascinated by the Gabe-DJ Hyde relationship that was going on at this time. Because it's, like, CZW doesn't read as a hot indie for me in 2012, 2013. Like, that's not what I register as uh, with them in my mind. But they're running, you know, they ran the Heat doubleheader together. They're running WrestleCon together. They run an Evolve doubleheader here. It's weird to think that Evolve and CZW were attracting the same fan base, but to an extent they were. Yeah, and when you bring up the CZW school... Uh, that's Drew Gulak. <laughs> the, the, that's <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, like you're being very charitable here towards DJ Hyde when when there's probably no person who deserves less charity here. So let me let let, let me shoot straight here. Well, well I know. That's I mean, Drew Adam, Gulak. Adam Cole credits a lot of his training with DJ Hyde. Now, Adam Cole's training, as he yeah. ha- has pointed out, would be DJ Hyde forcing trainees to have their hands behind their back while DJ DJ Hyde chopped them as hard as humanly possible or taking flat back bumps on the concrete floor. Now, that's DJ Hyde's version of training. I would not recommend it, but ultimately, it worked for Adam Cole, who credits DJ Hyde with being his primary trainer. I mean, there's a lot of questions we should have about about Adam Cole. That just is added to the list, bud. (laughs) Oh, one day he'll figure it out. One day I'll go back to liking Adam Cole matches. But no, today, I, I, I don't think I don't that think day. that's gonna happen. <laughs> I don't think that's gonna happen, bud. Oh no, he could he could flip promotions. I mean, he could go to to Wednesday Night Dynamite, and I think I'd be Adam Cole, baby, all over again. When I was a when I was in eighth grade and a freshman in high school, Adam Cole had a Ring of Honor T-shirt that said Adam Cole, baby, but it was in the Corona Light like logo. Yes, I wore that shirt probably once a week, and I would always and you know me at this point very straight edge uh, case low still am but just it was you know uh, with a bit more intensity as a freshman in high school when everybody's trying their first sip of alcohol and I'm throwing up the X's going not me not me but it would always be like oh cool beer shirt never mind that's not what it says and then I would go back to <laughs> to watching you know uh, Tory on tapes or ECW and study hall and I would go on with my life but Adam Cole for a, a time period very fun wrestler to watch. Not now, but there was a time where I really liked him. And actually, we'll talk a little bit more about Adam Cole in, in two weeks because I think he has a pivotal moment of his career in the summer of 2012, and it's not him getting his teeth kicked out. That's fair. That's fair. The other thing on the timeline before we break down Fearless 2012 is Ada is making his debut on the Strangate USA show. Ada will be with the company essentially for the next year. I believe he goes back to Japan permanently. Well, he goes back to Japan permanently in August of 2013. So he sticks right. around through the fourth anniversary show and is in a match that weekend that I that I really like. I'm excited to go back and watch. But Eita, at this point, he has not debuted in AAA yet. He is working primarily, I guess exclusively rather, IWRG and DTU. I am not the person to give you the intricate bookings or the intricate details of Ada's booking in Mexico, but I was looking at more DTU shows that he was on to try to piece together some names. And there was one match that really caught my eye on the August 19th, 2012 DTU show. I looked online to see if this match was out there and I could not find it, which really bums me out. But the main event of that show was a five-way match 
that saw Ata in the same ring as Drastic Boy, Flamita, Ricochet, and a man by the name of Eterno, who is also known as Abismo Negro Jr., but a five-way match where Ricochet defeats Drastic Boy, Ata, Eterno, and Flamita. Mike, what a collection of talent in that match. That's a bunch of dudes right there. <laughs> uh, I, I can speak a little bit more on DTU and, and IWRG. So Toriumon and the Dragon System in general has had a long relationship with uh, IWRG and Arena Nakapon. And if I'm right, DTU is not primarily based in Nakapon, but they are from around that area. So it makes sense like that's for people who are listening to, listening to this like two weeks from now. That's where they basically head shoot Skywalker for this year. He's been over there. But uh, I, I talked to some people, talked to our friends Cubs fan to get a better thing about it. But they they found someone in Ada that really enjoyed Mexico and they saw his obvious like abilities. And even like when we start talking about the show, when he makes his first EGUSA appearance, you could see how much he's taking from being in Mexico. It is uh, very fair to say that Ada loved Mexico one could say maybe he didn't want to return to Japan at one point, but alas. Okay, so that, 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 that's never been said before, that, <laughs> that Ada m- might have said things on social media that got him to a doghouse at one time with a different administration, Maybe Maybe was publicly saying, hey, I uh, like the wrestling here and some of the people, and I think I'm cool setting up shop here. And uh, that did not end up happening, but he has an Open the Dreamgate title on his resume to make up for it. I don't know, on the other hand, I know Ada loved Mexico. I do not know if he liked living with Larry Dallas and his father, as when Ada was stationed in America for this weekend, it lines up with Hurricane Sandy. We'll have more about that, especially next week and the week after. But it should be noted this is Ada's first week in America. He gets picked up Halloween night by Larry Dallas, which is scary in itself, and then is essentially thrown into this northeast war zone of of inclement weather and just a, a dangerous, dangerous place, and he's wrestling on these Dragon Gate USA shows. So... I, I, Mike, I mean, I don't have anything profound to say on Hurricane Sandy, but Dragon USA, as they promoted, are surviving the storm and decided to go on with their shows this weekend because the buildings they were running in did not have any significant damage. Yeah, and just to get like a, a, a overall st- like sense of this, Hurricane Sandy uh, finally dissipated on November second. It really hit the United States on October twenty ninth. This first show we're talking about is November 2nd. So this is very much like within the days after Sandy. And that's something that like this will be a week where I usually will harp on. You you know, okay, so I harp on the houses and I harp on this. I talked about it with El Generico just like 10 minutes ago. But this is a week that the fact that these shows even happened is kind of a powerful thing. So I'm not going to like judge who came out and who didn't for this week in the shows. And I will say aesthetically... I thought this show, which was Everton, or Everett, Massachusetts, is that where it was? Correct. Everett, Massachusetts at the Everett Recreational Center. I, I will say, now look, this was not a high-class facility by any means, but aesthetically, I thought it looked better than the two Midwest shows. It looked far better than the, the flea market outlaw nonsense at the uh, the show in Michigan and with how dimly lit and depressing the Congress Theater was in Chicago, I think I'll take the Everett Rec Center over either of those venues. Yeah, no, it looked like a place that you would have wrestling at. It did not look like you put 
three curtains around a part of a swamp meet or an empty abandoned theater. Yeah, it's uh, Dragon Gate USA. Well, well, let's talk about be, right before we break down this card. Do you want to talk about the production of this show a little bit because it's it looked better than the Midwest shows, but the primary source of light on this show looked to be an orange light bulb hung near the entrance way. Am I is that fair to say? Well, I think they were using I don't know who because. Uh, again, because of the news wires and everything, I don't know who they're co-promoting with, but it, it was like very much like using like 1980s stage lights. Did you notice that on the entranceway, like yes. those old style uh, colored gels on those? It, it it was of the time, of they, the time uh, of 2012, I, using a venue that looked like it hadn't done anything since 1985. I don't think there was a pre-show on this show. I know in two weeks for Freedom Fight they run a a pre-show with uh, the New York Wrestling Connection, but I think here it's totally independent. You know, they they went to Revere, Massachusetts twice in 2011. I thought those crowds were super dead, despite liking the building that they ran. I just I, the 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 crowds were not good. The crowd here and uh, for this show, Fearless 2012 in Everett, Massachusetts. Once they got going, and it took them a little bit to get going, but once they were up, they were up the entire show. I thought this was a nice little crowd. So, looking at Everett, the only other company that's on cage match that ran them in 2012 was Jakara. Then they then there was just a general uh, indie show, and then two from the Northeast uh, Championship Wrestling in 2014. So, not really one that did this, but I, I like the vibe of this place, and I thought the crowd was... This was a better crowd than anything on the Midwest shows, for sure. I would like to go back and watch that Chikara show. That is Give Them the Axe on July 29th, 2012. That main event is uh, best two out of three falls, the Young Bucks versus the throwbacks of Dasher Hatfield and Mr. Touchdown. Uh, one, I just want to see that match. That sounds outstanding. But I also would like to see what Chikara did, typically a more aesthetically pleasing promotion in this same building uh, compared to what Drangate USA did. But... Chikara aside, Evolve aside, CZW aside, Mike, I I am feeling fearless and I am ready to get into this show if you are. So am I. So as mentioned off the top, this is Fearless 2012. It is from November 2nd, 2012 in Everett, Massachusetts at the Everett Rec Center. We opened up with a Hurricane Sandy tribute video. And then after that, we had a video that was recapping all of Ricochet and AR Fox's feud, including some parts from evolve which was something that's like they very much made this like this is going to be the conclusion here which is something that to me only watching the dgusa things this time it does feel like you're missing steps along the way but like talking about what's going on in evolve and the clips added in here i feel like did a solid job building up the main event for tonight yeah it's a it's a nice b feud essentially and it's yeah it feels really rushed because it's really set up in Chicago, and then executed at Everett. So it's a span of two Drangit USA shows, but then you you factor in the context of Evolve, and it was it was actually a pretty well-built feud. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you on that. And then we went straight to the ring. It is Arda Ocal on commentary here, obviously, because of Hurricane Sandy, I assume. Larry, or Lenny, was not available. I keep on... I, I hate that I do that, but I... It's the L names that trip me up there, but Lenny was not at the show. It was Arda Ocal, most recently of ESPN Esports case. That's what Ardo Cal is up to now, if you were ever wondering. I thought he was a performance center guy now. Did he get fired from there? A while back. He's been at ESPN Esports for a long time. And they just pretty much, like, kind of uh, shut down. 
that <laughs> that that vertical, but he was still there, I believe, as of uh, the last week. So yeah, uh, I, no. I but he was say, Kyle Edwards. Okay, he was Kyle okay, Edwards yeah, that's right. in in I, developmental. I really miss Lenny on this show. I think I think Ocal's a fine announcer. He seems like a really nice guy from his Twitter. I think it was a mistake to have him fly solo the entire show. They needed a Chuck Taylor or an Eric Cannon or even, you know, Ricochet on the undercard. They needed somebody to go assist him in the booth because I did not think he was compelling enough to carry this entire show by himself. But for the most part, he knew the feuds. He knew the big moves. He knew the guys. He did not embarrass himself. But the absence of Lenny Leonard was felt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's only like one note that I really thought that they kind of missed out on having Lenny Leonard there. But we get into the opener. It is Johnny Gargano versus the guy we were just talking about five minutes ago. Johnny Gargano versus Ada. Johnny gets the win in 11 minutes and 39 seconds with the Gargano escape. And this will probably not surprise you at all, Case. But I thought that like this was a match that went a little long. But I'd rather this match getting a little long and getting more Ada in this. I thought Ada was so, so cool in this match. And the idea of Johnny Gargano having to deal with him here. I'm really excited to watch Ada on all of these shows going forward because this is, you know, young Ata, a guy positioned more as a future Brave Gate star rather than a Dreamgate champion. So it's just, it's night and day from, if you're only familiar with Ata through 2018 through 2020 Dragon Gate, this is like watching a different human wrestle. I mean, he looks different, he acts different, his entire in-ring set is different. And I love this match. This was... Almost the equivalent of, like, if Dragon Gate USA had a TV show, this is the type of match I would want on that show oh, every absolutely. single week. It was, a, yeah. it was like, a really fun-style TV match, with, which, honestly, Gargano needed, because I've been really disappointed re-watching these supposed Johnny Gargano epics. I don't think they've held up all that well, but here I thought both guys looked terrific. No, I, I'm totally with you on this. Uh, uh, it's interesting, like, you coming around to kind of, like, my mindset of, like, oh, yeah, Johnny was, like, it really was later that he kind of became the guy versus being positioned as the guy here. I remember I was listening to you and our past guest, Alan Forrell, on Alan Show talking about Gargano and the greatest wrestler ever and how you're kind of having a realization about him in a lot of ways. But this was exactly the kind of match you needed. You're right. This is a TV match. Ada just, like, really worked, like, incredibly, especially, like, this was, like, a stage between... Uh, Ada and Millennials and, and Ada Kobayashi. And I felt like that that was really interesting. The crowd got really up for the Paris near fall. That was his big near fall in this match. And, you know, I just thought this match was overall a whole lot of fun. And it started off, like, after the last week in the shows. This this set me in a good mood for this show. Absolutely. I mean, compared to what we had to start off, I you know, I think that, that Michigan show... What, what do you remember what the opener was on that? I, I should have cage match pulled up, but I, I do not. Do you remember what the opening match oh. was on the Michigan show? Oh, John Davis versus Jake Manning. Yeah, exactly. That's right. We open up with Jake Manning two shows in a row, and no wonder why I really hated those Midwest shows. It's th- this is uh, this show really represented a great, I, I not a great, a very good late stage Dragon Gate USA show. This is what the promotion needed to feel like, and the the warm feeling that I got from this show, I was entirely devoid of watching the Michigan show and the Chicago show. Yeah, yeah, no, this is a show that it didn't, well, like, there's no riding the plane. The plane is going down here, but it, it was something that, it was like the moment of, like, remember when, like, we got to have, like, 
those Route 2 really awesome Milwaukee shows. That's kind of what this show kind of had a little bit of a vibe of, which I really liked. I went three and a quarter on this, you know, like, but for like a match that's like this time, this well, there is going to be a ceiling with it. And, you know, saying three and a quarter, I still think this is a match worth like checking out if you're watching the show. Like, don't fast forward through this match if you're not a giant Gargano fan. I was at three and a half. I, this is exactly what I wanted to open up the show. And then after the match, Johnny says this is what DGUSA was all about. So Johnny Gargano's with us on this case. We're all in locks up there. Uh, he wants a sec. He wants to see a lot more of Ada. He said he's proud to hold this title. And he talks all, He talks about Sunday. But he says John Davis uh, runs in and lays him out. It's a real long beatdown. It looks like Gargano either because of the weird light that you pointed up. It looked like he had like blood over it. And then kind of like how John Davis was dealt with in in Michigan, the camera stayed on Johnny Gargano for like a solid like four minutes here. And it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, oh, okay. He got I've he really, got Gargano here. I've really sung John Davis's praise. I just I, I this heel run for John Davis. I just think it's a gross misuse of him. I don't think this is who John Davis is. I think he is a humble ass kicker, and he is not this big, brooding, F.U. tough guy. And I I just think he was mismanaged and wrongfully cast in this role that I just... I, I want established dominance John Davis back. That's what I really, really want. And this is not... It's just not the John Davis that I like. I will also point out, Mike, I don't know if you noticed this, but after the opener, the crowd chanting Ita for Ita gave me a good laugh. I mean... I, I, I did have a moment when the tropical storm came through Florida and it was the Greek letter Ada and in pronouncing it in my own it's like, how do you know how to pronounce it like that? It's like, well, um said the same as like the uh, at the time current dream gay champion mom she's like, Oh that, 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 that that's a wrestling thing. Oh oh no. as a quick like a just quick tangent, my mom only knows of about like six pro wrestlers and most of them are people that she saw on Total Divas. She also knows of Darby Allen. Like, those are the only wrestlers she knows. So there's I, I no way like that she I feel like this came up on the show recently, because I was telling you, my, maybe we talked about this off-air, but my mom knows the Young Bucks, Kevin Steen, CM Punk, and Rey Mysterio, because we met yeah. Rey Mysterio once, and it was it was a very nice moment. My mom waited in, uh, in line with me for a very long time as a second grader to meet Rey Mysterio. But every once in a while, she'll you know, ask how the Young Bucks are doing, and, and let me tell you, they're still doing all right, Mom. They are a very, very good tag team. <laughs> Their book just came out, Mom. They're doing great. Yes. They're doing great. Um, <laughs> just, just so we have all the facts out here, Mama Spears knows of the Bella Twins. She knows of Miz and Maurice because she loves their reality show. She thinks that John Cena never actually was in a relationship with Nikki Bella. Like, she's full on of that. That's fair. She knows of Daniel Bryan, and then she was watching TNT, and she saw one of the, one of the commercials they had for Dynamite, and the only person she remembers was like, Who's that skateboard kid? I was like, you mean Darby Allen? It's like, yeah, he looked really moody. Like, do the girls like him? It's like, yeah, no, the girls really like him. And I was like, I could see that. And I was like, all right, mom, thanks. That's a fair assessment of Darby Allen. I like that. So, w- 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 weird, uh, w- weird tangent there. Let's get back to the show. I'd rather talk about Darby Allen than this next match, but Mike, knock yourself yeah. out. Well, we have to talk about it. It is the scene versus DOF. Uh, it is. Uh, Caleb Conley and Scott Reed with Larry Dallas and Trina Michaels defeating the DUF of Eric Cannon and Pinky Sanchez. It was a twisting neckbreaker by Scott Reed on Pinky Sanchez in 10 minutes and 27 seconds. And do, do you get like the, the, the thing of like that 
Gabe has Sammy doing his own thing, but like Cannon and and Pinky are their own thing, and they're still both technically DUF, but they're really not the same group anymore. Because that was a big vibe I got on this show. There's a clear demarcation point after WrestleMania weekend, essentially after the nine man tag at Heat. Everything else the DUF does, it is Callahan and then Cannon and Sanchez. And it's it's a weird dichotomy they have going because Callahan feels really, really hot at this time. And Callahan is someone, I, you know, we briefly mentioned it, but, you know, he did, he was in a program with El Generico. He attacked Generico after a match, got suspended from Evolve because he was going to Germany and then Japan. So he was gone from the Gabe universe for about five months after the Sabu loss and the Generico loss, and he had snapped, and he needed time away. And so he he came back on that Evolve show that we just talked about, then this set of shows, and yeah, it the DUF dynamics have completely changed. It's really weird that they did this match here, because a year ago, during Revolt 2011, in Revere, Massachusetts, they ran the same match. They did the scene versus Cannon and Sanchez, The thing with this match, and it's not a moral indictment against anybody involved, but this was actually, I I thought, a pretty good match. Uh, Pinky Sanchez was as useful on this show as he's been in just about a calendar year up to this point. He and Scott Reed were a lot of fun together. Eric Cannon had a big hot tag that I like. And then Trita Michaels gets involved in the match. And again, you know, it's going to sound ridiculous. Oh, 2012 was a different time. But... As a society, yeah. we have we have progressed in the last eight years, and the last three minutes of this match, quite frankly, Mike, were shocking at everything that happened. And I, and I am uh, far one, uh, not not one, rather, to cast the first stone. I, especially in artistic endeavors, give a lot of room for leeway. But the the closing stretch of this match and the way Trina Michaels was violated. I did not enjoy it at all. I gave the match a dud because of it. And again, it's not that Eric Cannon and Pinky Sanchez are bad dudes, but this, more than anything we've seen so far, was just dreadfully dated. It, Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the best way to put it, and the fact that it is so intrinsically linked to the finish of this match that you can't really part and parcel it. No, you know, not this at isn't all. like something that's like weird happening on the outside or the entrance of the scene where it's just like, oh, well, remember how Alan had a had a fit about uh, Amber O'Neill? <laughs> no, the, no, this is like intrinsically linked to the match. Like you have to consider that there. And on a rewatch, like especially in today's day and age, it just does not work. And it's one of those things that, you know, he has a long history of not really being good about this kind of stuff. And it's something that I think that he gets a pass on a lot, especially like when you consider like. Evolve was still doing like really weird like uh, intergender stuff and in a lot of ways towards its end as well. So uh, by by Gabe, you're referring to? Yes, yes. The, the, this is this is one of those things that whenever everyone brings up like, oh, he is like one of the best bookers in the last few years. I was like, or the last twenty years. I'm like, he he definitely has his plaudits, but he does have like some things that you can't completely absolve him of, and he's never like shown any sort. If maybe he's booking the NXT women's division right now, maybe that's like the 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 the, the like least like but really misogynistic uh, booking he's ever done. To be honest, yeah, there's there's a weird pattern with some Gabe stuff. I I think like like Ring of Honor, you look at what Jay Chung did in the Embassy. I mean that right. that's that stuff. Like and, and granted, I have not seen it in many years. 
to me, I have. I have. It, it's weird. It, yeah, the, the vibe I get from it is it is a weird artistic choice rather than, say, this uh, poignant, uh, deeply offensive, uh, misogynistic angle, but a weird artistic choice in my mind. And I think that's just, you know, Gabe wasn't a, a, a forebearer for progressive change in society, and I don't hold that against him. I think there are times where he's evolved with the current climate. There are times where he's been slightly behind of the current climate. And quite honestly, as a professional wrestling booker, I, I know some people want more out of the wrestling. I accept it for what it is. I can't get too worked up about that unless I'm reviewing a match that, again, where I just felt like Trina Michaels. I, I'm sure I'm sure she consented to it prior to it. I don't think Eric Cannon was just grabbing her impromptu. But I did not like watching what I watched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just, like, puts a mark on, like, performance where, like, before this all happened, I was like, I thought that Caleb Conley looked great in this match. Yeah, Like, like this was, like, the step forward for Caleb Conley, and then you completely have this thing to happen, and you have Gabe going to Gabe things. Like, I, I, I say this because this isn't, like, a one-off thing where it's like, oh, he misread the room. This is something in his playbook. And I think that that's something that has to be kept in mind when you consider Gabe Sapolsky as one of the best bookers of the last 30 years. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. There, there's a lot to untangle there that I, I, I don't know if this is the show to do it. And I'd have to, one, one, I'd have to think about a lot of it, and two, I'd have to rewatch a lot of it. But I think everything you said is fair. And then we had a Golden Gate video. And then the next match, which was, speaking of DUF and the delineation and demarcation of the group, Sammy Callahan defeating Samurai Del Sol with the turnbuckle uh, brainbuster in 14 minutes and 12 seconds. This was my one Ardo Cal note. He did not pick up on that the fact that Sammy was doing El Generico's move as a finish. <laughs> yeah, that is that is true. It's weird in my mind because these two guys were signed in the same class of NXT recruitments. They were the first class of the Performance Center that I, I have in my mind that these two are linked forever, but this is their only singles match with one another, which is, which really? is kind of, at That's least, wild. at least on the indies. I think, you know what it is? I think they worked the Largo loop together, like yeah. often. And, uh, that is that. Yes. If I Google Callisto, or I guess rather if I put in uh, Callisto on cage match, there's a lot of Solomon Crow versus Callisto, but there was one Sammy Callahan versus Samurai Del Sol match. And I have to say, other than the Poison Rana spot at the beginning of the match where they just about die because they both fall through the ropes, I loved this. Yeah, this was like an absolute blast. This was this, something about this match and match later. This was a proto-PWG singles match mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and it worked very well. It kept it at a very good clip, and, you know, Samurai Del Sol, as uh, someone who's had his missteps, I thought that this was a big step forward, and he did a lot of really good selling when effectively Sammy Callahan just kind of played like a monster and squashed him for a lot of this, and he had his few hope spots. You know, uh, Sammy Callahan had just debuted in PWG a little bit before this show. He had up to that point, he worked a debut match against Michael Elgin. He went to the semifinals of BOLA 2012, and then he had a match with Davey Richards at PWG, which I know I really liked. I I think there was, even among Davey fans, I think there was perhaps some critical analysis analysis of that bout that I did not agree with. But yeah, Callahan at this point is a super indie guy and a and a superstar on the independent scene. But it is Samurai Del Sol who really impressed me here because after his dreadful debut against Masato Yoshino, 
We saw him look better on the Miami shows. He had a pretty strong showing on the Michigan show. He didn't really get a ton of opportunity to showcase what he does best in Chicago. But here Del Sol comes out, and he has put it all together. And he just has a really good match where, again, other than that Poison Rana spot, he's in the right place at the right time. His moves look really crisp. He did something to counter a Sammy Callahan move that I had never seen before, where Callahan does that... Uh, it's like a triangle forearm, essentially. Like, some guys do the triangle drop kick to send the guy uh, off the apron to the floor. Callahan does, like, a forearm version of that. And Del Sol super kicked him as a counter, which I had just never seen that before, and that looked awesome. And then the finish, which I like, especially on a show that Generico isn't on, I thought it was interesting to do the top rope brain buster. Or Cal doesn't necessarily hammer it home, like Mike mentioned, but I went three and a half stars on this. Just It's a reoccurring trend on this show of very, very good. Not great, but very good. Yeah, yeah. I went three and three quarters. I I mean, like, this is the kind of stuff that, like, a sub-15-minute, like, singles match where there's not a lot of filler, where they're just constantly working at a solid clip, I'm going to have a pretty good time if everything's executed well and they had a great concept here. But it just, like... It, this was like something where like I was starting to get, it pulled me back into it after the uh, Trina Michaels thing. But I thought that this was a a really solid uh, singles match between one guy who hasn't been seen a lot in a while and one guy who really could use a big singles match like that. I thought that this was a really fun match. After the match, we had a really awkward promo with Super Smash Brothers about Maraha Yasafa. Just those were two guys that should never. I think we now have enough evidence. Not promo guys. I, not not then, not now. It's uh, maybe, I, I don't know what it is. I don't detect their Canadian accents all that much when they talk in AEW. I wrote down in my notes, this promo was painfully Canadian. It was just, <laughs> it was too much for me. I'm going to be honest. It was just too much for me. I could not handle the extreme Canadian vibe of this promo. I mean, I know that for sure, uh, Stu Grayson is francophone, but it's, one of those things where, like, you just, it, it, you could almost expect that they were right out of Letterkenny with that promo. <laughs> so, yep. And then we go into the next match. This is, I was really confused by this match, guys. It is a captain's match, not a captain's fall match. Those are two distinctly different things that they, that this isn't on Arda, this isn't on DGUSA, this is on cage match for misidentifying this. So, this is a captain's match. The only falls that can happen are between Rich Swan and Chuck Taylor. The other four guys are just there to support and help them get out of situations here. But your captain on one side was Rich Swan, Shima, ACH, and they went up against the Gentleman's Club of Chuck Taylor as the captain, Drew Gulak, and Orange Cassidy. Swan got the fall on Chuck Taylor in 13 minutes and 22 seconds after Shima basically killed Chuck Taylor with a Schwein and a Meteor and just threw Rich Swan on top of him. There's so much to this match, and thank you for clarifying the confusing captain's match versus captain falls match because that was different be things. My, that was going to be my first point. Was I Drew Gulak went for a pin on Rich Swan very early in the match, and the referee didn't count it, and I was incredibly confused as to what was happening. There's, I mean, it's I wanted to like this match a lot more than I did. Now ACH is in this match. I googled high and low. I believe at this point in time, there was some controversy with ACH working this show because he had recently debuted on a Ring of Honor iPay-Per-View. And at this point, 
ACH had been on the Texas indie scene for a few years. He was becoming the new hot guy, the new flavor of the month. And he had worked, you know, high profile shows for both promotions at this time. But I do not have any more concrete evidence other than that. I think it was a controversy at one point. It's obviously been forgotten about eight years later. I weirdly thought ACH was maybe the least impressive guy in the match. I mean, did ACH do anything that really jumped out to you? Well, I felt like he thought he fit in the match a lot more than Drew Gulak in 2012 and Orange Cassidy at the very proto-proto Orange Cassidy phase. I disagree. Orange Cassidy, yes. I Look, I don't want to watch him now. I didn't want to watch him then. Uh, put on the mask and we can talk. Drew Gulak, on the other hand, was my MVP of this match. I thought really? he was awesome. Now, at this point, it's like... Gulak was never a, a charisma guy. I mean, when he got signed to WWE, they thought he would end up being a, a trainer just because he was so void of charisma before. I think he was one that did the PowerPoint gimmick for a while. And now, he's, yes, you know, yes. he's got a nice little career. I mean, good for Drew Gulak. This is, he's doing world of sport ripoff stuff. I mean, he's got the world of sport gear. He's not wearing knee pads. I mean, it is, it is so early, early Drew Gulak. I thought he brought such an interesting element to this match because all of his offense looked really stiff. He was able to grapple with guys with both Swan and Shima who could hang in. There's a great sequence early in the match of Swan and Gulak just doing some really tricked out grappling, and I thought it looked great. And I really wish at some point Gulak would have been able to mix it up with more Drangate guys. Now, Mike, we know from personal experience, Shima is a great grappler, but is not someone that likes to do a grappling match when he's touring. When he wrestled Daniel Makabe a few years ago, I feel like I can say this publicly, when that match was announced, I DM Makabe and was like, here's all these great Shima grappling matches. It's him versus Super Shisa. Watch these. This is what Shima's going to want to do with you. And, you know, Makabe said thank you, and then wrestled the match and came back to me and said, just so you know, that is not what Shima wanted to do. Shima did not want to grapple with me. Fair enough. But I wish we would have seen Gulak versus Shima or, you know, Gulak versus Eita even. And this is pre-Eita being really influenced by Yave style. But I thought he was excellent. He was my favorite guy to watch in this match because he just brought such a different element that I, you know, for as much as I like this house style, for as much as I like the flippy indie style... Dranga USA needed something different, something that wasn't a hard hitter like a John Davis or a Sammy Callahan or a high flyer like a Rich Swan or an AR Fox. And I think Drew Gulak brought that in this match. Maybe it was that, and, and in my notes, I ended up pretty enjoying this because I felt like the final stretch, like that's when they finally started getting into the gimmick very well with it. But I felt like it was so burdened by it that like having Drew Gulak in a match where basically his job is to beat down on the other team so they can't interrupt pinfalls just seemed like it was such like an odd choice to me in this and it just was like one of those things that maybe I couldn't get it out of my head if I ever do another rewatch I will rewatch this match for you <laughs> and see if my opinion of Gulak changes because this was something that just with like the stipulation it got so burdensome to me just because like the usual captain's fall the idea there and to conclude the definition there a captain's match is this one Captain's fall is where you can either eliminate both people, you can get a fall on both people on the other team, or just the captain, the match is over. That That's the fall that matters. So it just was like a very confusing mess in a way that only kind of came together in the last few minutes. And that was, it was very hard for me to get out of that mind space while watching this match. I'm like, why are you doing this style of match? It makes very little sense until the final stretch where it was like everyone diving in. It's like, oh, this is their job here. They're here to help either like force kickouts or not. I agree with you. 
I I gave this match three and a, three and a quarter stars, not because the work was bad, but I just thought they were completely handicapped by the gimmick, and it's a real bummer that they didn't copy what they did because they did a Captain's Fall match that worked. They did Chasing the Dragon 2011. I love that match. When we reviewed that show, I talked about how this is a gimmick match that is ignored by American wrestling completely and how it is such a useful tool to build feuds to be the the point the you know, the the B point and the A and the C story to a captain's fall match. It is such a great way to progress what needs to be done and here they are just they're they're working this strange match and it just doesn't work despite what I thought were a lot of great individual performances. What I will ask you is the finish where Shima puts Chuck Taylor up, hits the Schwan, hits the Meteora, and then throws Rich Swan on Chuck Taylor to get the pin. With the win, Rich Swan was granted a, a singles match against Chuck Taylor on the next show. How did you feel about this, of Shima just stomping this guy out and then Rich Swan getting the pin? I mean, it fits for the uh, storyline of Shima, because Shima tried, finally after years, was going to set Chuck Taylor, and Chuck Taylor kicked him in the face. <laughs> so that does like make sense of that. Uh, Shima and Swan, like him throwing it on on Swan, that's more of like a Shima affectation than I feel like a character choice there. But uh, you know, with like how screwy the stipulation was, and the fact that this was like a captain's match versus a captain's fall match, I I get it. But it's still one of those things that at the end of the day, this match was was cursed by its. Uh, I don't want to say cursed. That's not fair. It was burdened by the stipulation, by the rule set, versus how Chasing the Dragon, the rule set kind of let things fly in a lot of ways. When I first watched the finish, I kind of felt like it was a cheap way of getting Swan to beat Taylor without having Swan pin Taylor, you know, because it wasn't the standing 450 or a flash pin even. It was Shima's moves and then Rich Swan's warm body. But then I thought about it, and I, I was actually okay with the finish. I actually think it's a pretty smart way to get from point A to point B, which is that Swan-Taylor singles match. So I'm okay with it. It's just it's just a mess of a match. You have a stipulation that doesn't do these guys any favor. You've got Gulak and Orange Cassie and ACH all debuting for Dragon Gate USA in this match. And then it's a weird finish. It's It's a lot of good, but ultimately unsatisfying. Yeah, I think that that's, that's like the thing is like it's so hindered that you, you get to see stuff there like okay this is actually like working really well but you're still at the end of the day you're like well still there's only like certain things that could happen in this match and it's restraining in a lot of ways it's constricting and it's something that it kind of makes like ACH and like his first like big appearance feel like a non-entity in a way but also like as you said like he was not necessarily the ACH where I think he is perhaps one of the five best North American wrestlers right now so I think that's a, a an entirely fair way of putting it and then we go backstage it is Ricochet cutting up a cocky promo. He's wearing a suit, and he talks about his suit. And it's not a great promo because it's a Ricochet promo, but he's a superstar, and ACH isn't, and he's going to prove what a superstar does. Ricochet just I, – I forgot they had, like, this phase that he decided just to show up suited up everywhere. I forgot that this was, like, a choice he made in his life. I, I – we were critical about Gabe's booking history earlier. I will be fair to Gabe here. Ricochet – desperately needed a promotion that made him cut promos. Yes. Unfortunately, that means we have to watch Ricochet cut promos. That is the double-edged sword here. And I I have a lot of thoughts about the Ricochet versus AR Fox respect match. 
that headline this show, but we will get to that when we cross that bridge. But, uh, yeah, this uh, this promo existed, and yeah, Ricochet suited up Adam Cole did a similar thing when he became Ring of Honor World Champion. He used to walk around the Frontier Fieldhouse in a suit and tie, and it looked ridiculous. But you know, more power to Ricochet. You got you got to take some cuts, and eventually he'd make contact with a promo. But uh, this was not it. And then we had John Davis versus Akira Tozawa. Akira Tozawa, someone who's very much like just completely cooled off in DGUSA at this point. It's worth saying. Oh, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa. I do not agree, Mike. He was the most over guy on this show. Oh, but... he was. But like booking wise, he's kind of like when we go from last week into this week and he feels like a non-entity, at least so far. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's fair. But he is still twice as over as the next guy in this promotion to a point. Yeah. I, I, I don't know when they would have done it. I don't know if if Michigan was the right spot. We talked in 2011 WrestleMania weekend when he wrestled Yamato about putting the belt on him. Then look, we're not done with the promotion yet, which means we're not done with Johnny Gargano's reign. But as time goes on, the more we watch, I think it was a mistake not having Tozawa be open the Freedom Gate champion. Well, we'll have we'll have that question next week, I believe. Uh, two weeks, yeah, two weeks from now in the four way, yes, the four way. We'll be talking about this, but this is. This is Akira Tozawa versus John Davis. John Davis won with a lariat in 13 minutes and 33 seconds. This actually was my favorite match on the show. But it's one of those things that, like, the crowd was so into it. And Tozawa was great at selling a beating. And it, and I thought that it was, like, a nice bit of big versus small that really worked. And even though heel John Davis doesn't necessarily work, I felt like this match did. Yeah, I loved this match and the match that followed. I think you were really high on their first meeting as well, which is Milwaukee 2011. Right, I, I, Yeah, yes. you, you were really into that. So these guys have great chemistry. There's a great spot that I thought personified exactly what heel John Davis should have been, where Tozawa is going for a suicide dive. Davis catches him and hits the spine buster on the apron. It is just, it is such a, a, it is such a brilliant and brutal looking spot. And then... Davis does a move towards the end that I'm curious to see if this is something that he continued to do because I don't remember ever seeing it, but he he power he like it he tries to power bomb Akira Tozawa, but he sends Tozawa it's like a faceplant power bomb, and it's not one of those right. things where Davis picked up Tozawa and kept on going back with his momentum and dumped Tozawa face first. It's like he flipped Tozawa to have him land on his face. I thought that looked super cool. I thought that should have been the finish. Tozawa kicked out. Davis hit the big lariat, got the win. I went three and three quarters on it, but I'm I'm less interested in the match and more curious your thoughts on the John Davis entrance where he stared down a fan for seemingly eternity mike i what what do you think about this gimmick because it's not going anywhere i i will let you know now john davis staring at people is a gimmick that will come back regularly i mean this is the john davis like character work that i remembered that going to this i was like i'm not high on john davis i remember like and then i was like no john davis rules in the ring and now we're back to why i was not high on john davis you know like it kills any sort like a thing it's like quiet intensity is such a hard thing to get over in wrestling and it's not that john davis is an intense person it's just like this never connected in a lot of ways and especially on a show that already had awkward four minute pauses of things that like i like after a certain while i'm like looking at like cage match i'm looking at other things and then suddenly be naked starts playing like oh wait 
this match hasn't even started yet. <laughs> and, and that's kind of how it came across. I, I, unless my feelings on it drastically change, I will have a bigger rant on this in two weeks because I, I really hate the John Davis staring at people gimmick and, and quiet intensity is a cowardly choice. All right. I, you look, you will get your ass chewed out in an acting class by any credible theater teacher if you go with the quiet intensity choice for your character. It sucks. It doesn't read well. It's a cowardly choice. I don't like it in acting. I don't like it in wrestling. And there is your theater tie-in this week. As, as a as a, li- a product of the liberal arts uh, foundation, Mike, <laughs> uh, I, I have some credibility here. All right, I technically have a theater major, which is humiliating to say out loud, but that is what I'm studying. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, I've done the theater train too. You can't, the back of the house is not going to see someone just being quiet and smoldering. Brooding like, is not doesn't... fun on stage. Brooding is not an emotion that plays well unless you're doing it. It's, it's, I'll say it's fun to act sometimes in that brooding, quiet, intense way. It does not play to anyone though. Not at all. Not at all. But the match itself, I went four and a quarter. Like yeah, this is good for you. This is this is extremely my shit. Like this isn't like no big surprise for me. Like Akira Tozawa does like eleven tope suicidas, including the one that you talked about, which was one of the more brutal things. But Tozawa just keeps on firing up. And the big note is that I had coming out of this match was no one was able to get people so invested in them and able to be like, oh, this is a match that this other guy's gonna come out looking like a monster, like Akira Tozawa does here. Like he had like. In a lot of ways, like, I know I made, like, the comparison in the past with Naruki doing the promotion, being, like, a territory guy. He is the local babyface up-and-comer in, in DGUSA. Like, that's the story of DGUSA is the story of Akira Dezawa. And as you said earlier, like, he's two times more over than anyone else on the show. He's the local boy done well in a lot of ways. And that's what this match felt like. It was like, we're going to see our guy. We think he might be able to pull it off against the uh, big monster guy coming in. And it's like, you, you're still invested in it. You're still invested in it until he gets his clock clean with that lariat. I think that was true to Tozawa on excursion. Right now, I think you're underselling him. At this point in time in Dragon Gate USA, Tozawa is Sting. He's the icon of the promotion. He's the heart and soul of everything that's going on. Think about even from the prior show where John Davis pins Yamato clean, which is a huge deal. It was a result I was legitimately not expecting and was shocked by when it happened. But ultimately... Davis got more out of a more competitive match with Tozawa because Tozawa is everything to Drangate USA. I just, I'm really convinced as we go along, unless, and look, I'm looking forward to watching Gargano's heel run because I, I remember loving that stuff at the time, but I really think it was a mistake to not have the belt on Tozawa for some period of time. I mean, I'm the leader of that thing, so <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that. Then uh, we had Air Fox backstage. He just got back in Japan. He said he was in the airport for three days because of Hurricane Sandy. And he t- he tells Ricochet, but he calls Ricochet by his real name, but he says he wants respect. So probably Air Fox's best promo, <laughs> funny enough. But it's also something because it's very rooted in realism there. Yeah, that's uh, saying it's Air Fox's best promo is, I guess, a compliment. I I, I mean, it's low praise, to be fair. Like... I think the promo might have been better than Ricochet's, but it's also low praise again by saying that. I would say know? it's better than Ricochet's. I don't. I don't. It's. I've been shitting on these promos too much. It's probably it, mean of me to say that about Ar Fox because this was a fine promo. He's just a guy I would rather watch wrestle than talk. Yep, yep. And then two guys that we rather wanted to wrestle than talk were Super Smash Brothers. They're in the next match, the Open the United Gate Number One Contendership match where 
Super Smash Brothers went up against Mariah Safa, Ginky Horiguchi, and Ryo Saito. I believe that they were Ryo Jimmy Saito and and Ginky Horiguchi H-A-G me at this time. That is correct. Or, so that was never put across on commentary, but whatever. I, uh, I think, it, no, I think Ocal did refer to Saito as Ryo Jimmy Saito at one point. Okay, then. You're right, you're right. Uh, uh, it was uh, Ryo Jimmy Saito getting the pen on Sue Grayson with the double cross, a move that we don't get to see a lot, but whenever I see the, the double cross, I'm like, oh, the double cross is a freaking sweet move in 16 minutes and 13 seconds. I was blown away by this, and it, and it is specifically off the back, not to discredit Ryo Saito, but this is a Genki Horiguchi showcase match. He is unbelievable in this match, connecting with the American crowd, doing the exercise band spot, not once to a huge reaction where it connects, but then twice a second time where the band backfires and hits him, which gets a huge reaction as well. And he is just all over the place at this match. He's got a backslide from heaven spot on player Uno that I really liked. He does... Uh, Mike, I don't know if I've ever seen Horiguchi do this before, where Saito and and Stupefied Stu Grayson were in like a... I, I don't know how to describe it. All I know is that Genki Horiguchi sunset flip powerbombed Stu Grayson into player Uno in the corner. And I've seen right. that spot before, but I've never seen Horiguchi do it. This was Horiguchi playing to the American audience. He was in his element. And I think he particularly looked strong because for as good as Ryo Saito can be, I don't think his charisma projects to an American audience. I, I don't think, in part of it, look, this was only Saito's second match in Dragon Gate USA history. Now, he had worked the Ring of Honor shows that received so much praise, but he and Horiguchi had only worked the second show in the promotion's history, and they did it as heels, and I'm not super into those two as heels. Here... Saito's back to being a babyface. Horiguchi's a babyface. I think Horiguchi looks like a million bucks, and Saito is just kind of there. But Saito being there with Horiguchi's great performance and with SSB being at the peak of their powers in 2012, I went three and three quarters with this match. I loved it. I went three and a half. Uh, this is easily like the best match I think Super Smash Brothers have had in the promotion so far. And I do think you're right. It is based off Ginky Horiguchi, who recognized the audience. Did wear band spots. Did like a prolonged like stand-up comedy bit with uh, player Uno starting off this match, and it just kind of went straight from there in a way that I think that Mariah Safa are great at. And this is something that I think not enough people recognize how good they are at this stuff. Going straight from like full-on comedy to like a hot stretch towards the end. That's such a hard like level of difficulty to pull off, especially pulling off in America when you're a native Japanese act. It's just insane in a lot of ways and it came together and this was like really really a solid match i went three and a half on it and i feel like that this is something that i mean i understand why you're not bringing over maraha sapa all the time but they seem to like at least face maraha sapa that's an act that could have been like over a lot more and you know it could have been something also that for guys that are trying to seek out there i mean if you have a bad match against kinky horiguchi then you're not gonna be a good wrestler you know I'm shocked that Horiguchi isn't over in the promotion on a more consistent basis because after the main event, he takes the mic for a little bit and cuts a promo in perfect English. And as we know, in Japan, Horiguchi is the point of contact between the, the foreign wrestlers that are over there and 
you know, uh, he he's the one he's the one that gets credit for booking it because he's the one that explains to Ricochet or to Pac or to Rich Swan or to to you know Peter Casa whoever it is, hey, this is what the finish is going to be. And it's crazy to think that, you know, he's over a little bit in 2010. He works the Phoenix shows, WrestleMania weekend, and then works the Northeast double shot at the end of the year. But this is the last time we see Horiguchi. He's not back at any point. Now, in fairness, he was booked for the final shows of 2013, but did not make the trip over. And that will cover, you know, in a, in a few weeks when we get to the end of 2013. But it just seems like he should have been over more. He's a guy that can cut promos. He speaks English. He's a good character. And he is a really, really great wrestler. I can say that Ginky Horikuchi is from personal experience. He's, I, I don't want to say, say like a level there. I was able to have a full conversation with him like back in 2008. So yeah, Ginky is, and, and getting into it later, cut probably I would say that like the, like the most like fluent English promo out of one of the more traditional Japanese speakers, with the exception to Zawa, you know? Well, I like think Ginky he speaks better English than Shima. Oh, I mean, that's not... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's maybe not as charming, but it's better. Yeah, yeah, yes. But no, like, Ginky Horiguchi is, like, the person you come away from this match going, like, man. And now we can kind of, like, be at this point of, uh, there's a lot of people that I've been real interested in seeing, like, just Ginky Horiguchi in matches with this. Like, imagine if, like, they went, like, with, like, full-on, like, Warriors 5 having him over more. You know what I mean? Like, having, like, a... a re- I'm trying to think time frame-wise would have worked, but having him up against, like, early 2009, 2010, 2011, Drengate, uh USA wrestlers would have been really interesting. Like, Brody Lee. I would, see Bro- I would love to see Blood Warriors Brody Lee versus Ginky Horiguchi. You, you know what the missed opportunity was? Was not having the Jimmy's on WrestleMania week in 2013. The biggest crowds Dragon USA ever had, arguably the hottest crowds Dragon USA ever had, and you know some combination of Horiguchi, Susumu, and Saito, because I don't think they're going to, you know, they're not going to bring Kanda over, and, and I don't want them to. <laughs> uh, had they brought over Naoki Tanazaki, we would have had a conversation there, because I think Tanazaki, still, if he came over, he would kill it. But some combination mm-hmm. of Horiguchi, Saito, Susumu, I think would have gotten over like crazy in front of that crowd with the Jimmy's act specifically. Well, I looked up while we were talking about stuff what the uh, six-man tag was. I would have had the Jimmy's in there versus Shima and the Millennials. I thought that would be more interesting there. That was a weird match. I look forward to rewatching that. <laughs> yeah, so talked about John Day. Uh, we did not talk about this. John Davis cut a promo after this saying that he did things Gargano's way, revert, uh, referring to Evolve 17, but now things will be done his way later on in the weekend. And we got to the I, spec ma- the I Respect match. Ricochet versus A.R. Fox. A.R. Fox got the win with his second low main pain of the match. Let me pull up the match time. I clicked away. And 18 minutes and 12 seconds. Yeah, I... Well, first of all, we need to explain what the respect match is. I really... Yes. This is this is the point of the show where I'm really upset that we did not have accurate and up-to-date news wires because I would have loved to have known how exactly Gabe described the respect match. But the short of it is... Uh, as I would almost call it like a reverse I quit match. Like it's a, a match won by pinfall or submission, and then the loser has to say, I respect you. It is such a non-entity of a gimmick match. It is so nothing, and that is how they headline this show. Didn't they have one of those in WCW that with uh, Kevin Sullivan back in the day? You know what? They probably did, because it, it comes across like a gimmick match from 1992. Yeah, it was Brian Pillman versus... Uh... 
uh, Kevin Sullivan, where he said, I respect you, Booker man. Oh, that's oh, there. Well, there you go. And Joe Lanza's wheelhouse right there. As, uh, th- oh, that ahead. was a leather strap match, though. Oh, yeah. Well, this is this is uh, far from it. The thing with this match, I was frustrated by it. And I I'm frustrated by it because I'm watching it through the eyes of a fan in 2020 where I think wrestling has evolved to a point where I actually applaud Gabe for trying to do this feud of I am the better high flyer than you because that's just not like that's still something that I think is underutilized of two guys doing the same thing or doing the same move and you know one going well I'm I'm better than you you know some pitchers have a better fastball than other pitchers and I I, I would like to see more of that in wrestling as a whole the difference is we are now at a point in wrestling where we have seen Ricochet versus Will Ospreay and I think that changed the game in a lot of ways and they worked this match around the injured leg of AR Fox and he does just the awful, he dives to the floor and misses the dive and he tweaks his knee and oh my God, everybody's got to come out. They've got to help AR Fox to the back. Folks, we're so sorry. This is not what we thought our main event was going to be. Oh my God, AR Fox is going back to the ring. He's going to fight it out. And I just, I hate that spot so much. It's so overdone. It's so tacky. It never gets over. And so the rest of the match is AR Fox hobbling around and he's supposed to be the best high flyer but he can't do half of his offense because he's selling his leg. And I think the the tone of this match needed to be Ricochet and AR Fox doing the craziest shit they can think of, doing Ricochet versus Will Ospreay, but we just weren't at a point in wrestling where I think that was an acceptable idea. And while certainly there are aspects of wrestling that have evolved that, I, that I'm not in favor of, I think basing a heated feud and a blow-off to a feud off of who can do the best flips and that having the same effectiveness as selling the leg or a chair shot or a bloodbath or whatever. I think we are now at a point in wrestling where that is accepted. And I think in 2012, that idea was just not there yet. So I went three and a quarter. I understand they worked hard. I thought the work was good, but I was really annoyed by the way in this match was worked. I'm actually surprised I'm much higher than you on this. I thought that, I'll say like the whole like him walking to the back and thing like that really kind of slowed me down on this match in a way. But I thought Ricochet was an outstanding Rudo in this, just being an absolute asshole. He comes out in the Spike Mohican gear, which this time it made sense because he's like he's pointing to it and making like gestures of like I was his partner first, like making this thing that he's so offended by the fact that Shima, after the last year, has completely tossed on the side. Now that was something that really Gabe should have capitalized on. If you ask me, yeah, having like. Completely. Shima and Ricochet in there like this and then just being like an absolute prick after like having the injury and I thought like he was good at doing this but the crowd would the, the thing I heard this is the crowd wanted the flips don't do you think that's fair to say like the crowd really wanted the flips so even though I liked like this rare character choice of 2012 uh Ricochet and I've talked about this before I thought Ricochet was like really fun uh, in the midwestern shot as playing like the big league uh veteran card on people and he did it a lot here, but the crowd just wasn't invested in it at all. Yeah, no, it's Ricochet's work was individually good. I thought Fox's work was individually good, but it I just I wasn't interested in this match because of it. And that's exactly it. That's not what the crowd wanted either. It's not the way this feud was built up to watch AR Fox sell the leg. He could do that against Sammy Callahan. I don't care about AR Fox selling the leg when he's in a match with Ricochet when the match has been built up over Ricochet saying, I can do crazier shit than you. Yeah, yeah, and I have this note here that, and this is kind of like a summation, I feel like, of the show. 
this is a show that you take out the wacky stipulations for the trios match in the main event. You put it in Logan Square two years ago. You put it in Reseda any time up until they left. This show probably like just hits a whole lot higher. And uh, like the effort, like that's what really struck me was like, because the, the crowd was not a bad crowd. Like Akira Tozawa was a god to them. But I came away with this thing like, in a different promotion, I said this for like three different matches on the show, like like in front of a different crowd, in front of a different promotion, this would have been a lot higher of a match. And I kind of walked away from the show having that overall taste in my mouth. I, I think that's fair. I think that's an argument that I've used in the past on certain shows where it's just in front of the wrong audience or at the wrong time. It, this is a weird show. I don't have anything at four stars, which this is, I think it's only the second show where that's been the case, where I haven't gone notebook with at least one match, but other than the scene match, which I you know I don't I don't hold that against them. I'm not upset about the match. I explained I explained my reasoning there. I loved the show. I had a lot of fun watching the show. It felt it it reminded me a little bit of Chasing the Dragon, which was the Indianapolis show. Now, granted, that right. had the proper Captain's Fall match that was legitimately great, and it had. Uh, Ronan, Ch- Taylor and Gargana versus y- Yoshino and Yamato, which I really liked, and Doi versus Callahan, which you really liked. So this show did not peak as highly as that show, but it felt like a proper road to show building up to a bigger weekend. And I like that. I'm okay if they're going to run a triple shot and the first shot of that, of that triple shot feels like this, I'm okay with that. I like that. So I like this show a lot. If this was Freedom Fight two shows later and it's capping off the weekend, I'm probably much more down on it. But I don't know. I I really like this show. I just went through my notes as you did this. This is my high, highest rated show since the first uh, uh, Miami show. Like, this is the first one that I have two four-star matches on. Yeah, that, that doesn't... Su- oh, wh- so what did you go on the main event? Four flat. Four flat. Then what was the other match that you went notebook on? Oh, uh, Tozawa versus that's right, that's uh, right. you went John Davis. That. I mean, my, but potentially my, my, the match that if I, if we were to do our own draft, I would be main eventing it with Akira Tozawa versus John Davis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the only other show that I didn't go notebook on was actually, and I, and I could be wrong, I'm not looking at it, I'm just looking at the match listings, but I think it was Fearless 2011, which was another show that I like, because it had Shima versus Swan and Mochizuki versus Callahan. It right, had a yeah. really overly long Ares versus Gargano match that I, I hated the finish of, so that, that hurt it there. And then Yoshino and Pac versus Tozawa and Yamato, which I wasn't, I liked, but I didn't love. And it reminded me a lot of this show, and really this show had no low points if you take out the finish of the, the DUF match. So I, this is a thumbs up show for me. I really liked it. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you on that, but... We still have a couple things to go over before we put this show to bed. Uh, after the match, Ricochet put down the microphone and tried to leave, but Shima stops him, saying, respect, respect, you say respect. And then Shima quickly like just touches the hand of AR Fox and murmurs something on the phone that I on the microphone that I could not pick out whatsoever and then stormed out. Uh, did you pick up what what Ricochet did? Like I went back and tried to listen to it three times trying to figure out what he said. No, I was hoping you were going to have an answer for me, actually. No, we have so we have no clue what he said. It might have been like you're good. It might have been like that have been it. But that was it for that was the that was the way they concluded that. That's kind of wild. And then uh Ginky came out and in near Chris crystal clear English claiming that Ginky Horiguchi and Rio Saito would uh win the match, would win the United Gate titles. Uh and then Shima, I guess his daughter must have really been into Muppets at this time, because Shima called Rio Saito Gonzo 
and made a bunch of jokes that the crowd started chaining Gonzo at Rio Saito, and Rio Saito, of course, was hurt by this. And then, and then we go in the back. I don't know. Did you turn off the show at this point? Because there's one more segment. No, I saw it. Mike, please describe it. So Larry and Trina are backstage saying that they're say they're backstage talking about like how terrible DUF are, and then DUF uh, come out there. They are like chugging beers on this. They shove uh, Larry Dallas and Trina Michaels into a shower and pour beer all over them, and Larry Dallas takes off his shirt, and that's the end of the show. It just seems like they could have done something else in that segment. It just seems like it just that maybe wasn't the final cut they needed to use. That's uh, that's all I'll say there. Yeah, yeah. However, uh, uh, Shima bringing up uh, uh, just various Muppets, that's amusing to me. Like, <laughs> like that was – it had to be his daughter was watching a lot of Muppets at that time. That has to be it. I look. I was more focused on Horiguchi having the American audience in the palm of his hands. I did not think too much about the Muppets reference. Perhaps I really wasn't <laughs> sure if that was a Muppets reference or not. Maybe maybe Mike Spears just illuminated something for me. But I was. He said I, Gonzo knows. He said Gonzo knows. I don't knows. know. Like, I don't what? know. I don't know what that is though. I thought that. I honestly thought that was like an anime reference. Do you not know who Gonzo the Muppet is? I guess not. I'm thinking a Fozzie Bear. Let me look at Gonzo Muppet real quick. Yeah. Uh, I've never. I've never seen that dude before. You've never seen Gonzo the Muppet before. Unaware of who Gonzo is. Is that a deep cut or is he part of the cast? No. No. Like, he is, like, after uh, after Kermit the Frog and, and, uh, and, and like, the top-line characters, he's, like, the uh, A-tier guy. You no, know? he's not a top-line guy because who are the Muppets? He had, full mo- he had full movies based around him. It's Kermit, whole- Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear. I was going to say Big Bird, but that's Sesame Street. So, I, what, is this guy fourth? The Muppet Christmas Carol was all based around his family. I, look, you're look, Mike. As a kid, you have to understand. I watched Bob the Builder, and then around age three, I discovered Monster Trucks, and then around age four, I discovered Basketball. And so my children's programming was very li- limited as a kid. Not because I had restricted TV access. Actually, it was the opposite. But I wasn't watching children's programming. I was watching. Speed Channel and ESPN News in kindergarten. It's I I I this this is a product of a system. Like I didn't want to be this way, but this is how I turned out. Just so you know, I'm looking at the Muppet Christmas Carol, 1992 musical fantasy. So it is before your time. Uh, did make back its money at the box office? 12 million gross, 12 27.2. They made back their money. L- let's talk about starring. Let's talk about the billing here. Kermit the Frog, top billing. Miss Piggy, second billing. The Great Gonzo, third billing. Rizzo the Rat, fourth billing. Fozzie Bear, fifth billing. Michael Caine, sixth billing. I, I think I was thinking Shima was calling Saito Goku, but I knew that that wasn't it, but I thought maybe I just have that character's name wrong. I was I was confused by that segment because, I again, I don't know who this Gonzo gimmick is. All right, all right, let's get out of here. <laughs> well, Mike, next week it is Uprising 2012. We are heading into dangerous territory, the Voorhees, New Jersey Flyer Skate Zone, the home of CZW for many years, and now Durangate USA is going to make its mark there. Unfortunately, my understanding is, and perhaps I'm wrong, we might be proven incorrect, but there was a dark match between ACH and ATA that 
I think was DVD and live audience only. We have the iPay-Per-View cut of that show, or at least that's my understanding. So we won't see that match, which really sucks. But we will see Fire Ant and Jigsaw versus the DUF of Eric Cannon and Pinky Sanchez, Akira Tozawa versus Samurai Del Sol, a non-title anything-goes match with John Davis and Johnny Gargano, Ricochet and Rich Swan of World 1 International against the Super Smash Brothers. That should be excellent. A six-man tag of the Gentlemen's Club, Chuck Taylor, Drew Gulak, and Orange Cassidy against Cheech and The Scene. What a hodgepodge of talent there. And then your semi-main event and your main event. El Generico versus Sammy Callahan in a two-out-of-three falls match. And the United Gate Tag Team title match, AR Fox and Shima versus Genki Horiguchi and Ryo Saito. I mean, at, at the very least, there's there's something for me to like sink my teeth into, but oh, ACH versus Ada, that's a match that I, I really hope that the version of the show we have has that, but interesting I, I, show. I will, I will say, I have not seen this show. I am looking forward to watching this. There is a lot of stuff on that card that I like. It, it's got potential. It's got potential, which is something that we don't get to say that much of DGUSA anymore, so... That's going to do it for this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. We just hit our 500th follower, which probably is Kobe World Weekend. But, hey, thank you all for following there. You can follow Case at underscore in your case and me at Fujiheya. Case, do you have anything else before we get out of here? That's going to be it for me. All right, that'll do it. We'll catch you next time on Open the VoiceGate Rewind and Rewatch. Take care. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.